2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Graham, if you'd like to come up. On those nights at our home when we're not having spaghetti bolognese or lasagna and we're trying something new, Linda will often say to the kids, look, is this a do again? And usually the kids say, yeah, this is a do again. It was great. Um, The chapter that we are reading today, I think of as a do again. And in fact, it's a do again, 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 and then again. Because the life that we live in this world needs the sort of message that God has put here for us. Our culture is one of the few in the world that seems to be surprised by suffering. Most people in our world, on a daily basis, are confronted with a fairly brutal dose of reality. But in Australia, we've been trained to expect, on the whole, a long life, a relatively easy life, a life full of fun and freedom, health and happiness, comfort and convenience. We feel entitled to these things. And if these things don't come, we at least feel entitled to resolution fairly quickly. Linda and I have been hooked on a show on Netflix recently In the old days, when you watched a TV show, you finish the show and you wait a whole week before the next episode. Whereas shows these days, you go on the rise and fall of the show and you get to the end of it and you look at each other and you say, let's check out the next one. (laughs) Because we've been trained to not cope very well with resolution or lack of it. Um... Linda reads books like this. And she gets to the end because she can't cope with all these issues that have been arisen and has to find out how it finishes in the end. 
Now, you might apply that to many things in your life at the moment. Food, preparing it and eating it. We rush, rush, rush. Communication. We're not used to waiting and listening. We tend to rush to get to the end. A plane flight that's delayed. A red light. These things drive us crazy because our culture is training us to not be patient with the difficulties of life. And when we really face some speed, some speed bumps or potholes on our journey, it rocks our world. And we may respond by turning in on ourselves. We may respond by going numb. We may respond by reacting outwardly and looking for others to blame for what we are going through. And not surprisingly, none of these responses are healthy, either for us or for our relationships. But imagine if, surprising, if suffering did not surprise us. Imagine if we welcomed suffering as a gift of grace. Paul Brand was a famous missionary surgeon who worked amongst the lepers of India. Leprosy damages nerves so that the leper cannot feel parts of his body when they are injured or burned. And Paul Brand every day saw the tragic consequences of leprosy in his patients. And he said, if I had one gift to give to people with leprosy, it would be the gift of pain. And he learned personally to exult in the sensation of cutting his finger and stubbing his toe and exclaiming, thank you, God, for pain. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences. But He shouts in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Are you surprised by suffering? Or do you welcome it as a gift of grace? from the kind hand of your wise Father in heaven, who is up to something good. Now I have a slide up here, I want to introduce you to these two little ducks. Their names are Yay Duck and Yuck Duck. They travel together everywhere they go. You might like to think of them as a pair of ducks. We met them in October last year in Colorado. We went to a debrief for missionaries returning from all over the world. We were a gathering of tired, ragged people. During our first session together, we heard a devotion from 2 Corinthians 1 on the theme of paradox in the Christian life. And over the following week, the Lord ministered His grace to us, to this gathering of His broken children. He gave us love. He gave us rest, He gave wisdom, healing, and He showed us some deep secrets of how to live healthily in this confusing and broken world. The Lord helped our small, rational Western minds to embrace paradox. Since then, I've been amazed to see how much of the Christian faith involves paradox. This book called Paradoxology is all about this. Paradoxology makes a bold claim 
that the paradoxes that seem to undermine belief are actually the heart of our vibrant faith. And it's only by continually wrestling with them that we can really worship God individually and together. Who is God? Well, He's one God who is three persons in perfect love that out of the overflow of that, He gives us life. Who is Jesus? Well, He's one person who is fully God and He's fully man. Who are we as human beings? Well, God's made us male, He's made us female, and in the most intimate of relationships, He's made us to come together and be one flesh. Who are we as the church? Well, we are many that has been made one, with one head. And think about life in the kingdom of God. The first will be last. Whoever desires to be the greatest must become the very least. In weakness there is strength, in death there is life. And one of the most difficult paradoxes to come to terms with is our theme for today. How suffering can be a gift of grace, a blessing from our wise and kind Heavenly Father for our good. Now, all of us have our own stories of suffering. They are unique journeys of damage and despair, of pain and of paradox. And they are stories not to be kept secret. They're stories to be told and journeys to be honoured. Now, what's my journey of suffering? Well, more recently, it's been the rise and fall of South Sudan, civil war, tribalism, genocide, famine friends who are now living in refugee camps and part of it is me living here at the same time as knowing all of that. Our family, we've had our fair share of cancer diagnoses, of cancer deaths, of mental illness, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, of physical disability, suicide, more recently a nephew with leukaemia, and a few messy divorces. And for me professionally as a GP, every day I'm seeing a community that is wrestling with suffering. Now what we need to understand and take to heart is what's in this passage today. We're going to look at Paul's observations in verse 3 to 7. We're going to look at Paul's example of 8 to 11. And then we're going to look at our own lives, our stories, and see what we can apply. And as we dive into this passage, I want you to be on the lookout for five things. Praise, perspective, paradox, presence, and partnership. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that you do not leave us alone in a broken world. But you speak to us, and particularly through this passage, you speak to us in our suffering. Please help us to hear what you have to say, and heal and restore as we need, that we might look to you in our brokenness and find you. Amen. The context of this letter is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He's had a strained relationship with them, 
and he's having some difficult things that he will be saying in this letter. But he begins the letter with praise of God. Many of his letters talk about the church that he's writing to and thanksgiving for them. Because of the strain in this relationship, he praises the Lord instead. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now this word comfort is repeated ten times in this short passage. And it is a special, special word for God's people. It comes from a Greek word, paraklesis. And it's translated with comfort, encouragement, consolation. It's actually so much stronger than our English words can convey. It is a word rich in the imagery of the prophets of old. Particularly Isaiah, when they speak of the messianic age when the Lord would come and gather his people. Isaiah 40 says this, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. Isaiah 49, 13, The Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And 66, 13, as a mother comforts her children, so will I comfort you. Now the Jewish people, as they gathered in their synagogues, they put their hope in these promises. And Paul, as a Jewish man, a scholar in the Hebrew scriptures, he knew them well. He shared this rich heritage. But as a follower of Jesus, he had come to see the fulfillment of these promises in history. The Father of compassion and the God of all comforts had become the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This comfort, encouragement, this paraclesis comes from the Father and was mediated to his people by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. One day in one particular Jewish synagogue, a 30-year-old man was given the honour of reading the scripture for the day. This man took the scroll, opened it up to Isaiah 61, and he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. And he goes on to speak of himself as the fulfilment of this rich promise of paraclesis that is to come. Imagine being there on that day and hearing this announcement. The Lord Jesus knew he was the Messiah, the embodiment of paraclesis, sent from the Father into this broken world for the salvation of the people of God. And from that point on, in his three years of ministry and in his death and resurrection... He embodied the presence of God in this world of suffering and brokenness. Now, some of you already are making another connection. John 14, John 16, Jesus speaks of another paraclete. He prepares his disciples for his departure and that another would come, another paraclete. 
prophets who would come and teach and remind and empower his people to live boldly amidst the suffering of this broken world. You see, this word paraklesis is not a fluffy word of cry-on-my-shoulder type comforts. This is the triune God of eternity mediating his presence to his broken people. The Heavenly Father sends his son, Emmanuel, and then sends another paraclete, the Holy Spirit, so that the people of God are never alone in their suffering in this broken world. God does not promise in this world resolution from our suffering. What he does promise in this world is his presence, his paraclesis. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, as we read on in this passage, we notice a particular paradox developing. God who comforts us in all of our troubles. The other word in this passage that's repeated almost as many times as paraclesis is this word trouble, distress, suffering, affliction. It is a Greek word, phlipsis. It's a word that speaks of the idea of pressure felt inwardly as a result of outward circumstances. Now, what does Paul have in mind here? Affliction as a result of his ministry as an apostle, of living boldly for Jesus in a world that is hostile? Probably. But more generally, it can speak of simply that pressure of living in a broken world. All of our affliction. Paul says. And he does not expand on all the specifics of the circumstances, but it's reasonable to assume that he's thinking of all affliction that is experienced as we live for Jesus in this broken world. Let me give an example of this. When we arrived in Colorado to attend this debrief conference, we were carrying the thlipsis of life as a missionary many outward circumstances that had resulted in strain and burden and pressure, grief, sadness and distress. Our debrief involved sharing our story and and exploring three questions. What have you experienced? How has it impacted you? And what is the Lord doing and saying? through it all. We were learning to see that in the midst of our flipsis, in the midst of our affliction, our inward pressure and distress, that the eternal God was present and doing his mysterious work. This is the paradox. Paraclesis comes amidst our flipsis. God's comfort comes in the midst of our affliction. Yadak and Yakdak, they always travel together. Both are there 
and both needed to be honoured. We learn that so often when we describe our story, we might say, how was your week? Well, there are all these good things that happen, but... And we go on to say a bad. Or all these terrible things have happened, but the Lord is faithful. And we've learned to contrast the two. At this debrief, we learned all these things have happened and all these other things have happened. We must honor both and see the Lord working in and through our thlipsis and his paraclesis. When we suffer, we often feel alone. And I think as Westerners, we feel this even more intensely. Yet as we read these verses, we hear Paul speak of all sorts of connections in our afflictions and in our comforts. As you look closely, you see that we are united to Christ. We suffer with him as we live for him. And we also receive his comfort as we live with him. And we are united to one another. We receive comfort from God in our affliction so that we can share that same comfort with others. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, speaks of us as a body. When one part suffers, all of us suffer. And when one part is honoured, we can all rejoice together. So what is the Lord up to in our suffering and our comfort? These first few verses mention two things. Our suffering produces in us patient endurance. Now note, Paul needs to qualify what type of endurance we are talking about here. It's patient endurance, not impatience. I was sharing with my sister the other day and we thought we could probably write a book about impatient endurance. But to write a book about patient endurance, that is something that the Lord produces in us. It is not merely passively coping with life. It is actively hoping in the midst of it all, placing our confidence in the goodness and greatness of God. The other thing that develops in us is that we can comfort those who are in any trouble. The things that you learn in the dark nights of your soul will be blessings to others. Many of us, I think, we can endure terrible things if we know there's purpose and often if we know that someone else will benefit from what we are going through. What great suffering a husband could endure for his wife or a parent for the child or a soldier for his brothers in arms. Sometimes our journey of suffering is simply for the strengthening of another. Now we've looked at verses 3 to 7, at Paul's general observations and now we move on to verses 8 to 11, to a specific example from his own life. It's one thing to speak of truth. It's another to actually live it out under pressure. And this is what we see in Paul's example from his own life. 
Now, the specific context of what he's going through. I love Paul's raw honesty. He is writing unedited to a young church. He's refreshingly transparent as he speaks of his own suffering that is specific and intense and very personal. Now, most likely for him, he's speaking of this experience that he had in Ephesus, ministering there for two years, and then a riot developed, and he was under threat to his life. His ministry concluded, and he had to flee. You can read about that in Acts 19. Paul's readers in Corinth would have been aware of those circumstances. But Paul still says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Paul wants to inform them of what is going on inside of him as he walked in the midst of these intense sufferings. Paul is one of those raw, humble leaders who allows his brothers and sisters to look into his private world so that they might be comforted with the same comfort that he himself has received. Not surprisingly, we'll see these same five things showing up. Praise, paradox, perspective, presence and partnership. Let's begin this time with paradox. Now Paul's slipsis was intense. He says he was under great pressure, burdened excessively, beyond his ability, so that he despaired of his very life. In our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. We might say, I cannot cope anymore. I cannot control what's going on. I've reached my limits. I'm being pushed beyond them. I've realized my mortality. Now, the paradox here is expressed in terms of life and death. Paul had been taken to the end of himself. He sees that his death is possible in these circumstances. But it is then that he can see the resurrection power of the Lord. See, Paul saw something very great of God. That he is the God who raises dead people. Death does not defeat his purposes. Death is not the end. In fact, death is the necessary means for God to display his resurrection power in all its greatness. Now, what is the resurrection? We often think of the resurrection as something that happens after we die physically. That's the second resurrection. The first resurrection is when we come to faith, we are awakened to life with God. It's a resurrected life that begins now, that we tap into, that we experience, even as we live in this broken world. We are no longer dead in our sins, but resurrected to life with God. God raises dead people. That's what Paul saw, and he praised God for it, and it gave him a deep, enduring perspective. 
on his life in this broken world. These things happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Is there anything harder for we as Westerners than to have our illusion of control over our lives shattered? Our whole culture trains us to think as the centre that our future is up to us. Where there's a will, there's a way. And that by applying ourselves, we can determine our destiny. What a tragic and exhausting illusion this is. Is it any wonder that anxiety and depression in our culture is so pervasive? What man, what woman, what child can carry this sort of responsibility on their shoulders? Now, it takes time for God to free us from our self-reliance. As Westerners, we do not wait well. We might think, okay, Lord, I'll stop relying on myself. I'll learn to trust you. But can we just fast track all this suffering so that we can get to the end and then we can have resolution from it? But do you see, we must trust the Lord with the time frame too. And there may be more self-reliance in you than you think. And remember, sometimes our suffering may be for others. So the Lord may call you on a hard journey, not just for your own growth in character, but maybe for the blessing of others. So trust him with the time frame of your suffering as well. How kind God is to Paul. To take him through extreme and sustained suffering so that he would not rely on himself any longer, but put his faith in God who raises dead people. Now on him we have set our hope. That is Paul's words. He makes a conscious act of faith. He's experienced enough of the Lord and his resurrection power to know where he should place his trust. I have learned, Lord, and I will trust you. In these last few verses, there's this deliverance um, beat that comes through. He has delivered. He will deliver. He will ultimately deliver. Paul sees that's the nature of this God that we worship. We see the ongoing presence of God at work in Paul's life. God does not just act once and then disappear. He remains present. Deliverance will happen again and again and again. Now you may have heard that joke of a wife unsure of a husband's love and he responds saying look I told you at the very beginning I love you if anything changes I'll let you know (laughs) now God is not like that he loves us and gives us regular displays again and again of his faithful love for us 
his broken children. He does not abandon us. He remains present with us as the God who is able to raise dead people. This passage finishes by, as you help us by your prayers. Another way of phrasing it is working together by your prayers. There's a mysterious connection between the powerful intervention of our sovereign God and the prayers of his people. Paul invites the believers at Corinth to join in, to work together with God and with his apostle. And when you remember this strained relationship that Paul has with these Corinthian believers, this is an amazing reaching out of reconciliation and an invitation to partnership. And the potential result of this sort of prayer and partnership is thanksgiving. So that thanksgiving would overflow as we turn away from self-reliance to trust the life-giving power of God who raises the dead. And as we demonstrate this by coming together In intercessory prayer, the glory goes to him. A life of dependence always results in thanksgiving because he is the one at work through us. An example of that. One of the more recent prayer letters from um, our friends in the Middle East involved a man, Ben, from Needy Land. Now, Ben was a man from another faith who was given the book and he was awakened to life. It was such a cool story to read. And I rejoiced because I knew that I had prayed for Ben and I was part of it. But at the same time, I was convicted. I realized I didn't pray for Ben much at all. How much greater my joy would have been if I'd prayed earnestly for the salvation of this man who was lost. You see, my joy was not as great as those who ached regularly in prayer for this man's soul. But I got a taste of it, of what it is like when we pray and through our prayers, God acts to bring resurrection life. Now, some application. How do we apply these truths? I want to highlight three things. Do not be surprised by suffering. It is a gift of grace to you and it's a gift of grace to others through you. Our culture is training us to expect a life of convenience and comfort and resolution. But our Lord says in this world, you will have trouble. And in the midst of the trouble, he is there. He's up to something good in all your troubles and particularly in the worst of them. He is the God of the impossible. He's the God of resurrection life. 
Now in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, Do not grieve like others who have no hope. Now we should not only apply that at funerals. Based on 2 Corinthians 1, we could paraphrase it like this. Do not suffer like others who have no hope. If we are to witness to the life-giving power of a resurrected Jesus, then the world must see during our lives, they must see us approach suffering differently. I heard the story recently of a GP who just diagnosed a man with melanoma. And the GP felt prompted to follow up with this man's wife and say he does realise how serious this is, doesn't he? He seemed almost flippant when I told him, almost as though it didn't make any impact on him at all. None of my patients have ever responded like that when I diagnose cancer. His wife replied to the GP, Don't worry. He knows what the diagnosis means, but he is not afraid of death. He believes in God who raises the dead. He is not flippant. He's just confident. What a testimony. This man had learned during his life how to suffer with hope. And so he knew, faced with death, how to truly live. And when you think maybe that your suffering is undeserved, then remember, the Lord may be asking you to suffer in a particular way for the sake of others. Are you willing to do that for Him? Are you willing to do that for them? Are you willing to trust Him so that by your patient endurance, others may take heart and see that the Lord is enough for them too. There are several teachers at my kids' school who've recently been diagnosed with cancer. And because they are teachers, their cancer journey is very public. For one in particular, the prognosis does not look good. Now this is tragic. Faithful Christian men, husbands and fathers, young in life, facing terminal illness. Now what's the Lord up to in this? Maybe he's giving these men an opportunity to suffer with hope, to rest confident in the Lord and the reality of his resurrection life. And to do that publicly. Imagine what could come of this. A whole school full of children who quietly watch their teachers not be surprised at suffering, but wholly, boldly rely on God who raises the dead. Now, that sort of witness could inspire a whole new generation of kids to go to the hard places of the world and boldly live for Jesus because they've seen 
that he raises the dead. Now remember, your suffering may be for others, that they may take heart and live boldly for the Lord. So be faithful in your suffering. Number two, embrace paradox and keep trusting him. Now, do you see all the paradoxes of the Christian faith coming together as we experience suffering? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all in this passage. The incarnate Son, who is God, become one of us. He knows what suffering is like. The body of Christ coming together around suffering people and in our oneness and unity, suffering with, mourning with those who mourn and giving of the comfort that we have received from the Lord. The way up is down, in weakness there is power, in death there is life. Christianity is full of paradox and in the paradoxes we meet God. And in the paradoxes, we deal with this broken world. Now, why does God allow the tragedy of South Sudan? Why does he allow famine and genocide and civil war? Why does God allow my seven-year-old nephew to have leukemia? Why does God allow these things? What is he up to in all of this? I don't know. But I do know him and I know that he has the wisdom to weave all of these paradoxes together in a way that will magnify his greatness and his goodness. So we must continue to trust him amidst the paradoxes of life in this broken world. We must embrace paradox and continue to trust him. Now, a third application is a little bit lateral. Don't be afraid of earthquakes. Move to the spiritual fault line. Now, I've recently been to New Zealand. I haven't lived in a place where you're living on a fault line, where earthquakes happen. We went to Christchurch, and you're familiar with earthquakes that happened just several years ago. And I remember meeting locals and finding it fascinating. There was a quiet boldness to these people who had weighed up the dangers of living where they are living and they chose to stay amidst those tensions and live. Now I've been reminded how easy it is for us to seek comfort in our life and long for predictability to live in spiritual safe zones or relational safe zones. Now, if we take to heart the teaching of 2 Corinthians 1, we will choose to move to the spiritual and relational fault lines of our world, to those places or those relationships where there is tension between the kingdoms of light and the kingdoms of darkness, where safety is not guaranteed. It's a danger zone, and earthquakes may happen. 
Yet I believe this is where the Lord would have us serve. On those frontiers, reaching out into the darkness, forsaking our comfort and convenience and risking it all in the hope that some in the darkness would reach out and see his wonderful light. How many of us have suffered for the gospel? Have we suffered because we hold the name of Jesus dear as we seek to make him known in a hostile world? If you do not feel you are suffering for the gospel, maybe you are living too safely. Maybe you need to move to a spiritual fault line. Maybe the Lord wants you to take some risks for him. Remember, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I want to finish with one slide. Simon will put it up in a moment. This is a mural at the front of the hospital in South Sudan. It was painted by orphans who read the story of Jesus raising from the dead the daughter of Jairus. When I gave this idea to the orphans, I said, I want you to contextualize this, make it African. But make sure that you represent the Lord Jesus as he was 2,000 years ago. The Lord who came at a particular time and in a particular place now intervenes in every people group in the world. On the one side are the words, do not fear, believe, written in English and Arabic and the local tribal language, Bari. Now, the hospital is now closed. There are no missionaries there anymore. The hospital staff are gone and they're living in refugee camps. But this picture remains and the Lord remains. And one day I hope to return to Ye, and I fully expect to see bullet holes in this wall and paint flaking off. But through all of that, all of that brokenness, to also see the power of the gospel continuing to be proclaimed through this scene and the words of Jesus that he spoke. You see, there is comfort in suffering. There is power in weakness. There is life in death. There is a treasure in we who are jars of clay, such is the power of the gospel in a broken world. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we worship you as the eternal God who has come 
to be amongst us as broken people and give words of life. We know that it's often in suffering that we truly are set free from our self-reliance so that we can see you as you are and reach out to you and truly live a dependent life that results in thanksgiving. All of us are at all sorts of different places this morning. But Lord, I pray that you'll minister to each of us, restore us, comfort us, help us to sit with unresolved questions, to sit with paradoxes. But in all of that, Lord, may we not just passively cope, but may we actively hope in who you are. And we pray for all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.